0: Alright, hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful, I need a more negative W. Man, these last little few weeks, man, they have not been great for the combat sports world and some adjacent ones, have they? Yeah, but the world of mixed martial arts, and again, adjacent combat sports, depending on the week and my preferences and how much time I have. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host. Thank you all very, very much for being here. Per usual, if you could interact with the product at all, like, comment, subscribe, that helps. Star rating, written reviews, whatever your podcast platform of choice happens to request of you, if you could do that for the sake of feeding the eldritch abomination that is the algorithm, the machine learning program that no one really understands anymore, that... uh, Works at these things. Uh, that that would help a lot. Um, if you've done any and all of that, sharing is the best thing you can do. Point people you know in my direction if you think they'll enjoy the show, or if you think I'll just annoy them. Uh, I don't mind doing. I don't mind doing that for you. You, you, you and me, we will we will uh, conspire to annoy some of your friends. And if you're a new listener, I trust that your whoever referred you here is doing so in good faith and not trying to annoy you. Unless you find me deeply annoying, in which case, uh, sorry, I'm just me. So, thank you, as always. Anything and everything you do to support to support the show is deeply appreciated. All right, on the agenda. Last night, UFC 283, the UFC's first pay-per-view of the year. Their first trip back to Brazil since, well, the pandemic. Because uh, the last event they held before they had to cancel a bunch of them in March of 2020 was their crowdless one in Brasilia. It was headlined by Charles Oliveira and Kevin Lee. So, first time in about three years they've been back to Brazil, so we will go over all of the results from that, the good, the bad and the otherwise, and news of the week, and something I did not plan to talk about, but this will be the last time I discuss Power Slap. I I will talk a little bit about that today, I think, because there's no card to preview for next week, and... I can kind of do what I want. This is my show. So. Uh, that and, of course, other again, other news of the week. So that's what's on the agenda. Thank you all very much. Let's get into it, shall we? So UFC 283 took place in Saturday from the uh, Junese Arena. I'm probably mispronouncing that. In Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. They had 15 fights, which is too many. Just too many fights, guys. I've said this for a long time, 15 fights, that's too many for a card. It's just, it's just too much. In the main event, for the vacant light heavyweight title, I was hoping for chaos. You know, there was a party of me that was hoping, you know what, we could get a no contest, that would be funny. Glover Teixeira winning and then retiring would be very funny. Like, that would have been the funniest outcome, I think. Uh, sadly, we did not get humor... Instead, we got Jamal Hill defeating Glover to share a unanimous decision, 50-44 across the boards. I was 49-44. I actually gave Hill 10/8s in round three and four, and I did give Glover the fifth. I'm not sure about that in hindsight, but doing it in real time, I don't know. The fifth round was just... I mean, given where both guys were physically, like, it made sense that it just wasn't the best round of the fight. Um, I picked Hill, I seem to recall. Uh, I remember being... A, I remember going back and forth a little bit on this one uh, on paper. Turns out in practice, well, this was not close. Um, Hill's takedown defense was vastly improved. I mean, coming into this fight, he was giving up a takedown, I think, around on average. I mean, he gave up a lot of takedowns. Uh, he might have... What was, the, what was the stat? I believe among ranked light heavyweight contenders, he had the second worst takedown defense, statistically, go, coming into this. Now, obviously, he was aware of that particular deficiency and worked very, very hard on it. Because he only gave up, I think, two, maybe three. My hunch is two all fight and Glover was going for him. So uh he put in the work to become very good at stopping most of what Glover does for takedowns. On the ground Glover was better, not surprising. Hill was good enough defensively to avoid really bad positions and had good timing about forcing his escapes, right? the big thing about Glover's top game is he's very good about going position to position and kind of settling. He's not a big scrambler most of the time. So anytime he would move, Hill would do what he could to not let him settle. And that was kind of key for him not getting smothered and taken out on the ground. On the feet, Hill just longer, good power, uh... Switched his stance a lot. He was landing pretty good one-twos for a while. He landed a head kick in, uh, I think it was the third. That badly hurt Glover. He was sneaking in uppercuts. He tore Glover's face apart. There was a moment, I think it was between rounds three and four. I was shocked that the doctor did not check on Glover. Um, his... I have the angles right here. His left eye... ...was swelling, and there was a cut under the brow, and it was kind of on the outside near the edge, but... ...that left eye was swelling up, then he got a cut on the right eyebrow that ran... ...kind of perpendicular, not straight vertical, but a little bit like an, like you're making an X across the brow... ...went across the eyebrow, and it opened up pretty wide. Uh, and I was... ...I got to look at it between rounds, and the like. they didn't call the doctor in to check on him, like... ...what are we doing here? It was a bad cut. Now... The doctor did come in between rounds four and five to check on him, and getting a better look at that cut wasn't great. Again, it opened up very wide, which is never good. But it wasn't all that deep, which is kind of where the like the real danger comes from those cuts being deep. And it wasn't a terribly deep cut. Still, wasn't good cosmetically, and it still bled, and you. Know, Again, still not a good cut. And I would not have blamed them if they stopped it. However, I can see the argument for that cut not necessarily being a fight stopper. Uh, At least in MMA. In boxing, they probably would have called that. Uh, Then again, maybe not, because boxing's kind of inconsistent about what they consider fight stopping cuts more often than not. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I... Here's the other thing about this fight, and I'm going to yell about this more about a different fight later. But this fifth round, again, it's the round that I kind of thought Glover won. That round didn't need to happen. Um, It was just more head trauma that he absorbed for no good reason. Um, The corner really should have stopped this fight between rounds four and five. Apparently John Hackleman, who was not one of the, I don't think he was one of the official corners for Glover in this fight, but he um, was Glover's coach for a long time. Uh, he was kind of saying like, hey, can we stop this? This this fight reminded me, with uh, not quite as dramatically, in terms of either the outcome or some of the one-sidedness of it, but if you remember the fight between uh, Glover Teixeira and Alexander Gustafsson, this fight was kind of similar to that. Uh, again, not identical, but... Yeah, but... If you didn't see this one and I just told you that, that'll give you a pretty decent idea. Uh, so easily the best performance of Jamal Hill's career. Uh, hands down, best performance. Best guy he's fought. And he showed himself to be still offensively potent. Defensively responsible fought all five rounds at a decent clip. I'm... I'm still not sure how his cardio will hold up if he's forced into a higher... a higher-paced fight. But... that's, you know... that's gonna be a matchup thing. And that's one of those questions that you only really get answered when you fight someone with a crazy motor. I mean, if he didn't get overly... if he didn't get obviously fatigued... The first time he just goes five rounds at again a decent enough clip, he's probably gonna be okay until someone really forces a high paced fight, whether or not anyone does well, that remains to be seen, but that would that would still be something of a question mark I think in general, you shouldn't rely on him gassing out if you're just gonna fight at kind of the standard light heavyweight five round pace uh yeah you can. Really solid performance out of him. I don't know how long his title reign will be. That's something of an open question. I don't know how he's going to do against. There's a couple of things here. And I, this is going to sound like I'm tr- like I'm uh, knocking Jamal or Glover, and I'm I'm not. Just if I'm going to air my you know speculations here about the future, then I have to talk about some of these things. So. It's not that Glover doesn't have some power in his hands, but his striking is not terribly sophisticated. In fact, there was a joke for a long time, I think I saw Jack Slack make it, and it's been true. Like, Glover's striking is just right straight slash overhand followed by a left hook. Doesn't really have a jab. Doesn't kick a whole lot, it's just kind of, you know, right straight left hook, right straight left hook, right straight left hook, and kind of repeat. I mean, that's what he knocked out Ryan Bader with, if you'll remember their fight. It was just, okay, he was getting, he was losing that fight. And then Bader's chin not exactly being great. He kind of got caught with that same sequence. And so I'm curious what he'll do against a real top-end striker. And you might be saying, well, didn't he fight? He fought Tiago Santos before this. Let's all be very clear. Tiago Santos ruined his career, basically, in that fight with John Jones. I mean, ruined might be a bit of a stretch, but he has never been the same since what happened in that fight to his knees. And, I mean, not even blaming the guy. Like, yeah, your knees got destroyed. You're probably never going to be the same again. But someone like a Jan Blahovich, or... Don't even really know who the top end of light heavyweight is at the moment. Um, or there's rumor, you know, there's talk of uh, Alex Pereira moving up. Um, Pereira might take this guy's lunch. I mean, it, that's just a stylistic, and that's more a style thing. Like that's not me saying Jamal Hill sucks. He does not. He's the UFC champion. He is not the champ. He's not the champion by accident. He didn't win this fight on accident. Um, Circumstances might have... You know, in this form, like he was supposed to fight Anthony Smith originally, and that was going to be in a couple of weeks. This version of him probably would have beat Smith, which might have been enough to earn him a title shot pursuant to a few other personalities. So him being in this position, again, it's not accidental. It's opportunistic in the sense that, you know, who predicted the draw coming out of ankolaev and Blahovich you last month, but He didn't he did not win this fight on accident, and his success in general is not accidental. I mean his only loss is it ever? I know his only UFC loss is that one to Paul Craig where Craig uh caught him in that it's only loss ever. So it's listed as a TKO. If you'll recall, Craig caught some kind of a was it a kimura? No, it was it was a triangle armbar I seem to recall, and like dislocated the elbow or the shoulder, like something got messed up, and then Craig kind of got on top, and once the guy's arm was like not working anymore, he was able to get the stoppage. But that was that stemmed from groundwork. Um, I mean that's not, but. That's all to say, like, this is a very talented fighter. Him being in this position at some point or another might have been somewhat inevitable. Now, again, how long will this title reign go? You know, what will a crafty striker like Jan do? What will a tough, well-rounded guy like Ankalaev do? You know, there's still some very open questions here. Uh, And... I don't think he's the best light heavyweight in the world at the moment. That's probably N- Vadim Nemkov, believe it or not, the Bellator light heavyweight champion. But uh, so again, like that might sound like I'm down on Hill. I'm not trying to. De- I'm not trying to you know jump on the guy. I'm not trying to be overly negative. This was a very best performance of his career, like I said. And he earned this win, and consequently he earned that belt. So. I am not taking anything away from him, but talking about the future, then degrees of speculation become necessary. I don't know what his next, you know, his first defense will be, but the UFC finally has a champion in this division, which is more what they care about than anything else. Like, they don't care that Jamal Hill might not be the best guy in the division. They care that they have a champion who can be in the rotation to headline an event because that's what they do. That's what they care about. That's why they throw interim belts around. That's why they strip titles as regularly as they do. Like, that's the big deal, so. Uh, On the side of Glover Teixeira, he retired after the fight. uh, For the best, probably. I mean, he's 43. And he's had a long career. He's been fighting for 20-some-odd years. He's been with the UFC for quite some time. He's been very... like That guy's career trajectory has been... For a long time, because he couldn't get into the United States. Like He was just a guy on the regional or higher-end international cards that was developing a very serious reputation. And then he finally got to the UFC and had some success got to the title level and John Jones kinda just beat him up for five rounds because John was John Jones. <laughs> and Persevered through that. You know, he had that, then he had some bad fights, man. I don't mean like un- I don't mean like uninteresting. I mean like Alexander Gustafson like beat the crap out of him before stopping him in the fifth round. Uh, Rumble Johnson absolutely put his lights out. Like, he had bad setbacks. And just kept going. And was never really the favored son at any point. Like, he had to kind of lobby for that title shot that he got and kind of got it because of, like, some circumstantial issues with other parties. And then you know, we're all looking at Jan Blachowicz who's on this really good run and beats Israel Adesanya and, like, you know, Jan's probably going to beat the old man, right? Not that night. Not on that night, man. Uh, Glover put it on him. Then he has that, uh, further record, for the UFC fan voting that gave Fight of the Year for 2022 to Gilbert Burns and Kamzat Shemaev, you all suck. And I mean that. Like, that's not... I'm not hating on that fight. If that's your fight of the year, watch more fights. Because Glover and Yuri was better. In every way. And I mean that. In every way. So, turns in that, and then it comes here, and this was your fight of the night. I don't know why. Like, this was way too one-sided to be fight of the night from where I sit. Um, There was some drama in the first few rounds. Like, Glover would get a takedown, and Hill had to kind of fight his way back up to his feet. Hill would unload with a bunch of shots, and then Glover would land just enough to get him to back off. Uh, I don't know, again, like, this... But this fight should have been stopped after the fourth. I I absolutely mean that. Like, there was no reason to send Glover out there to just... To do what? Right? There was no reason for that. But I'm not responsible... What would have been my fight of the night? Hang on. Let me think about that for just a second. What would have been my fight of the night? I might not have given one, just to be candid. Um... I probably would have, yeah, I probably would have foregone fight of the night and handed out a couple of more individual performances because that was not an especially, again, that if you liked the fight, I'm not saying it was a bad fight. Let me be very clear about that. But I don't know, like to me, fight of the night is something that should like carry weight and value, and this didn't. Um, know, again, you might feel differently. Maybe I'm the old curmudgeon out here. Just kind of, you know, when I was. I remember when fight of the night used to mean something, and it just means extra money to Glover and Jamal Hill, and I'm never against fighters getting paid more. So the UFC, again, they've got a light heavyweight champion. They will try to sort that division out going forward. Fair enough. Um, bless Glover Teixeira for a couple of things. One, again, just like a, a genuinely inspiring UFC run second when he when he gave his retirement speech he you know told all the people in attendance and I'm going to talk about the attendance in a second or two here and I know I saw a bunch of you guys throwing crap on Brandon Moreno when he was leaving the the uh the octagon in the fight before this um don't do that to Jamal Hill respect him he's the champion so again kind of and uh, let me say that for talking about the flyweights. Um, and a few other things. But, so, Glover out here, you know, retiring, with his face torn open, several different places. After getting kicked around for four and a half rounds, basically. Going, no, guys, I expect you to behave like decent human beings. Uh, seriously, like, bless him. Uh. He's gonna turn his attention to coaching, which he is quite good at. He's got uh, his—he's got his school, which is in—I believe it's in uh, Danbury, Connecticut, right? I think that's where he operates out of. Uh, again, Alex Pereira's there. He's got a few other names that I know have come through that group. So I wish him nothing but the best, man. He's been nothing but a genuine class act the entire time he's been in the UFC. Uh, you can look up any interview with him, and he's just a very cool guy. You can look—no one said a bad word about him. Keeps his nose clean on social media and whatnot, so I, again, I wish him nothing but the best in the next phase of his life. Nothing but the best. Co-main event: uh, Brandon Moreno defeats Davison Figueiredo to claim the flyweight title. Dr. Stop is between rounds, was it three and four? Yeah, between three and four. Um, Not a whole lot to say here. Uh, Moreno did a pretty good job kind of adjusting to what Figueredo did in their second fight, or their third fight, rather. Figueredo won that fight a lot by being a lot more patient, by not engaging in Moreno's pace of fight. Uh, By kind of goading him in, getting him over-anxious, getting him to over-swing, and then countering. Moreno seemed to kind of slow down a little bit here himself. And, all right, I don't need to be crazy. And if he's going to let me kind of dictate terms, I just need to be smarter about it. And that worked out well. Um, Both men did some decent enough kicks. Some takedowns out of Moreno, which is a nice change-up for him. Uh... Messed with Figueredo a little bit. I had Moreno up 3-0 going into the third... At the end of the third. First round was competitive. I still... Moreno won it from where I was sitting, but competitive enough round. Round two was quite close. I can see all of the judges gave it to Figueredo, and I can see the argument. Round three, easiest round to score. Moreno, by a pretty wide margin. I'm... Um, what led to the finish was Moreno, he threw this kind of, it wasn't quite a gazelle punch in the traditional sense of the gazelle punch. It was a really long, and again, the, the gazelle thing is, if you're not familiar with the gazelle punch, let me do a basic kind of, it involves um who's good about this? Both Floyd Patterson and Marvin Hagler were really good about this punch. Arguably Hagler more so than Patterson, but Patterson did a little bit more, like, to develop it. So... You you lower your level, right? You bend at the knees. and th- They were boxers, so again, it's a boxing thing. And then you kind of spring up again, like a gazelle. If you've ever seen a gazelle, like, run or jump, you know, boing, everything comes up. And as you go forward... <coughs> pardon me. Um... It's not quite an uppercut. Usually if you go to the body with it it's more of an uppercut like and you get some serious force behind that when you go to the body. Uh but going to the head it kind of has a little bit more of like a kind of more like a shovel hook, right? A little bit more like at the angle. And Moreno, this was more of a was there was not a lot of that kind of upward coming towards you angle it was more a really long kind of um it wasn't really a hook this would have been how would we say it in so you guys know i my my base of martial arts is american kenpo and we have some weird names for stuff but everything kind of has its individual name so this would have been because moreno throws this punch sort of a punch With his left hand. And he doesn't connect with any of the four major... He doesn't connect with the knuckles. He doesn't even connect with the four knuckles. He connects with... It's a fist, so this is legal. But he kind of hits with, like, the thumb. Right into the right eye of Davis and Figueredo. So this would have been... Um you call this uh sort this of an inside because it's coming in a reverse hammer fist right you've seen hammer fists before that's landing with you know the the meat of your hand down at the the anterior and would be that? no because that would be anteriors front and back uh i forget the name sorry i forget the technical term but the outside of your hand Right, down by the, again, that that kind of meat down by your wrist, under your pinky. And you do, like, the Donkey column kind of hammer fist thing. So a reverse hammer fist would just be hitting with the other side of the hand. In this case, that's where the thumb is, you know. And you don't punch this way because you'll break your thumb, as a general rule. In fact, it would not surprise me at all to learn that uh, Moreno messed up his thumb or his wrist or something with the way this landed. Uh, But it was a closed fist. It was a legal blow, and Figueredo reacted immediately. Moreno got him down and wins the round pretty handily, but that eye shuts on Figueredo. His right eye shuts almost immediately, and they can't get it to open between rounds. Fight's called off, as it should be. Moreno wins. Fair enough. Um, Again, it was... It was a competitive fight, but I did not think it was all that close. Moreno was just kind of distanced himself from Figueredo over time. You know, Figueredo's gotten a little bit older. He's 35. That weight cut has never gotten easier. In fact, after the fight, um, Figueredo said, yeah, I'm moving up to 135. I don't know how much luck he's going to have there, for the record. Like... A lot of his style relies on being that kind of heavier-handed guy and just kind of the bully... And, buddy, you ain't bullying bantamweights, not the good ones. Yeah, I saw some people suggesting, so he could come in and immediately fight a top, you know, 10 guy. Like, yeah, if you don't like Davis and Figueiredo, you could do that. I mean, there was like, oh, you know, he could fight. You know, look at who you got there. Like, you got guys like Piotr Jan, Rob Wallace, really, and that fight's going to be pretty crazy. Uh, you got Umar Nurmagomedov, where I think, is is he still outside the top 10? I'm going to double-check that, actually. Because um, he shouldn't be if he is. So, Bantamweight. Yeah, for some reason, Umar Nurmagomedov is still at 11. So, just for the record, let, let's go over the top 15 of Bantamweight for the moment. You have Aljamain Sterling as champion, Sean O'Malley at number one, Piotr Yonit, too. Rob Dwallis, really, I'm just going to go down the list. Marlon Vera, ooh. Corey Sandhagen. Sandhagen and Vera, by the way. Great fight that's going to happen. Uh, Rob Font, Dominic Cruz, Song Yadong, Pedro Munoz, Ricky Simone, Umar Nurmagomedov, Chris Gutierrez, Adrian Yanez, Saeed Nurmagomedov, and Jack Shore. Buddy, I ain't picking Figueiredo over any of them. Any of them. The closest you might get is Jack Shore. The closest. And I suppose maybe you could argue... Look, well, Yanez is very good... Uh, There might be an argument that he... That Figueredo's experience could be swung in his favor if he figures out ways to use it. I would not pick him to beat Yanez, but I acknowledge that might be possible. Anybody else in that... That, like... Even older, Dominic Cruz. Like you picking Figuero to beat Dominic Cruz at this point? And look, Cruz is closer to the end of his career than the start by a significant margin. You know, Pedro Munoz. Like you, you, that would be. Look, those two would take lumps out of each other. But you really think that uh, Figueroa would find a way to beat Pedro Munoz? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, I. Good, good luck to you. That's uh, that's a rough road, man. Bantamweight is maybe the best division in the sport. Uh, as for Moreno, again, I mentioned he kind of got pelted with you know garbage and debris and whatnot as he was leaving. He went out of his way to antagonize the crowd a little bit at the end, like his post-fight interview. Daniel Cormier, for some reason, set him up for this. Cormier not having a great night on the mic, by the way. Um, In fact, let me talk about Cormier just for half a second. The number of... You want to get drunk watching this event? Take a shot, take a drink, every time that Cormier refers to a fighter by the wrong name. Uh, He's just... Look, his knowledge about wrestling position... And his ability to communicate information about the wrestling aspect of MMA is extremely high. He's very, very good at that. I give him that credit. But he's way too informal for my taste, and that that might be a taste thing. And I'm not convinced he watches MMA unless he's actively calling a fight. Like There's elements of fighter development that he is ignorant of it seems and he just can't keep these people straight makes you realize that a lot of the time when he was he would do commentary he would refer to someone as this guy pretty clearly now he's doing that because he doesn't know their names and that either gives him a verbal crutch in a few seconds to double check who it is or it's just a place filler like you know I'm talking about that guy Which guy? That guy. Ain't great. Um, He asked Brandon Moreno in Rio what it means to once again be a champion representing Mexico. And Moreno went into some Spanish to insult the crowd a little bit. So he kind of provoked them. uh, Which is not necessarily to excuse the throwing of detritus at Brandon Moreno. But it wasn't out of nowhere. If you poke the bear and the bear hits you, like, that's just kind of what's going to happen. Like, you. It didn't come out of nowhere. L- let me say, I- I'll put it like that. Like, sometimes the Brazilian crowd reacts very badly for no good reason. Like, somebody just loses a fight fair and square and they're just not having it. They're upset, yada, yada, yada. Like, that, okay. You can you, know, you can behave that way if you so choose under those circumstances, but it reflects badly on you. Sometimes you get fighters that, and I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing, mind you. Like I I don't mind a fighter that looks at a hostile crowd that's hostile for not necessarily a good reason, or and just like you know what? No, I'm not taking your crap. Like okay you should not have to be deferential to the audience uh, in a lot of these respects. You know, I I, I think that's... Way too many fighters spent way too much time sucking up to, especially the Brazilian crowd, whenever they'd go down there and beat a Brazilian. So, I'm not opposed to... Again, like, you don't have to be kind of cowed and deferential to them in all things, so... Uh, but Moreno did, again, he did kind of poke the bear a little bit. Uh, so, and for whatever it's worth, um, I don't know what's next for Moreno. Let's take a look at Flyweight, actually. Um, logically, maybe you'd go Alexandre Pantoja? I mean... Uh, Pantoja's beaten Moreno in the past. Didn't he boot Moreno out of the UFC, actually? I double-check that, because I believe I'm 90% sure. Yeah. Yeah, Pantoja beat him, and that sent him out of the UFC. He came back very quickly. But... Yeah, okay, so only only three people have ever beaten Brandon Moreno in the UFC. Sergio Pettis no longer with the promotion, Figueredo, who he's now beaten... Twice. And Alshandre Pantoja. He has the draw with Askar Askarov, but with Askarov retiring due to medical issues or whatnot, like that, or getting his release, again, for kind of the same reason, so. Askarov and Moreno in a rematch is something I would have been very curious to see. Uh, unfortunately, again, we're not going to get that. Might be time for Pantoja. Um, Pantoja's a tough matchup for Moreno. I would pick Moreno at this point. Moreno's grown a lot for Vantel. He's a tough guy. Like that, that, he's a tough out. He's already beaten Kai Kara-France. You got Brandon Royval making noise. Mateus Nikołowski seems to be kind of coming up. Uh, you had Mohammed Makayev trying to make noise around this, and Makayev is just so deeply, like, how do I say this? He has some very good technical skill, but he's a deeply unimpressive fighter most of the time. Like, he's young enough in his his career and in his age. Like, these are things that you can work on, but I talked about this after his last couple of fights. Like, you gotta start doing stuff, buddy. (laughs) Uh, Manil Cop seems to be kind of moving forward, so... Flyweight's kind of starting to rebuild as a general thing, so... We'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fairly competitive, but Moreno, that was starting to go Moreno's way in a big way even before the punch that ended things, ultimately. Uh, welterweight. Gilbert Burns defeats Neil Magny via arm triangle, 415 of the first. Pretty much as expected. Um, look. I don't have anything against Neil Magny. But... I saw someone on Twitter put his career like this. And I don't think this is wrong. Magny's career, and he's been in the UFC for a long time. Like, And that's not an accident. Like, Magny's UFC debut was in 2013. He's about to have 10 years in the UFC in February. Assuming they don't cut him out for this loss, and I don't think they will. He's, he's going to get 10 years in the UFC, which very few people do. Give him credit. But Magny's career can more or less be summed up as the following. Especially once you get to, like, 2014, 2015. This becomes very true since then. He is obviously good enough, and I mean very obviously good enough, to beat a certain level of fighter. He will beat the rank and file of the UFC welterweight division. And some of them, convincingly, And any time he takes a step up, he gets beat and he tends to get beat badly. So, let's take a look at Magny's... uh, uh, Let's go through Magny's career here very briefly, because it, it deserves to be acknowledged and respected. He's accomplished a lot, he's been there for a long time, and... I think we're getting closer and closer to the end for him, so let's just take half a second here and appreciate Neil Magny very briefly, right? So he comes into the UFC um, with a win. Proceeds to lose his next two to Sergio Marais and Seth Bozinski. Goes on a good winning streak after that. Uh, Gassan Umaladov, Tim Means, Rodrigo de Lima, Alex Garcia, William Macario... Kichi Kunimoto, hyun Lim. It was a pretty good win, actually, the Lim fight. So, good winning streak. He takes a step up to fight Damian Maia. Uh, loses the first round, gets choked out in the second. Wins a couple of split decisions over Eric Silva and Kelvin Gastelum. I did think he won both of those fights. Has that weird fight with Hector Lombard. Not too many times you'll see a 10-8 first round for one guy followed by a 10-8 for the other, but that's kind of what happened there. Fights Lorenz Larkin and gets just brutalized and stopped in the first round. Fights Johnny Hendricks, former champion. Wins a pretty clear unanimous decision. This would be one of... Was that Hendricks' last fight in the UFC or just very nearly? Uh, Very nearly. That was his third loss in a row. Hendricks was, again, he was not too much longer for the sport. He then fights former lightweight champion Rafael Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos runs him over, kind of like Burns did. In fact, very similarly, same submission, same round. Happened a little faster for Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos got him down quicker. Um, Dos Anjos landed a pretty nice outside leg kick that off-balanced Magny, dropped him, jumped on him, got him from there. Burns had to work a little bit more for the takedown. Um, fights older Carlos Condit, gets a unanimous decision, knocks out a guy who was barely in the UFC, takes a step up. Two at that time, uh, rising contender Santiago Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio proceeds to win that fight via fourth-round stoppage, knocks him out. Wins three, Li Liang, Anthony Rocco Martin, and former champion Robbie Lawler. This was 2020, so Lawler on the downside. Fights fellow-ranked contender... On the way up, Michael Kiesa he also wins a pretty clear unanimous decision. Beats Jeff Neal, beats Max Griffin, and credit to Magny for taking this fight at all, mind you. Fights Shavkat Rachmanov, loses badly, getting choked out in the second round. Fights Daniel Rodriguez next, gets a third round stoppage, takes a step up. Fights Gilbert Burns here, and Burns runs him over. The kind of sustained success that Magny has enjoyed is somewhat rare. And he deserves all kinds of credit for it. And I mean that. But this has been his ceiling for a long time. Uh, as for Burns, Burns said he wants to become champion still. Fair enough. Uh, he called out Colby Covington. Fair enough. Uh, Covington or Bilal Mohammed? I think, would be should be next for him. And the winner of that probably should get a title shot. Especially with the confirmation that we're getting the third fight between Edwards and Usman. Uh, yeah, one of those two guys for Gilbert Burns would make a lot of sense. Alright, here I have to yell again. And we're going to have to have this same conversation because apparently we have to keep having this conversation. Women's flyweight. Jessica Andrade defeats Lauren Murphy via unanimous decision. 30-25, 30-25, 30-26. I was 30-24. I gave Jessica Andrade a 10-8 in every round. Maybe you could argue the first was only 10-9. Maybe. But I don't think so. Um... This fight should have been stopped between rounds two and three by Murphy's Corner. There were a few different points in the third round when the referee should have stopped it. I believe Osiris Maya was the referee for this one. Um, not, Not one for the highlight reel, buddy. Not one for the old scrapbook. You sucked on this one. Um, this fight went pretty much exactly like I thought it would. Andrade opens up with some leg kicks, which is nice to see her start using. Uh, But look, here was the long and the short of this one for me. Lauren Murphy is pretty physically strong. Andrade is stronger. Murphy is very tough. But that toughness leads to some bad habits, especially defensively. Lauren Murphy does not wear damage especially well. She marks up. And that's not the end of the world for a fighter, right? A lot of great fighters mark up pretty easily. Two of the greatest kind of get marked up sometimes. It kind of comes with the territory. Okay, so please don't kill me for saying that, but she does. She gets marked up. She does not wear damage especially well. She will persevere through it. Because she's tough, she has grit, but it it hangs around on her in some really obvious ways. And Jessica Andrade puts damage on you. If there was a if there was a que- like, I mean this to anyone who was like looking at picking Lauren Murphy, like, what in the world did you think she was gonna do to Jessica Andrade? Out wrestler. Like Andraj can wrestle. I'm not saying she can't be out wrestled, but you gotta be real good and you have to be dynamic to out wrestle Jessica Andraj. Lauren Murphy's not a very dynamic fighter. In fact, Andraj seemed very well aware of what Murphy does any time they tied up. You wanna see the most not the beating the beating in this fight is kind of the thing that, you know, it's impressive, but if you want something technical to take away from Jessica Andrade's performance here, Murphy is extremely good at getting to your back in the clinch. Right? This is one of her great skills. Or you know, she goes for a takedown, and and as you're defending, rather than pursue the takedown, she just slips to your back and starts working from there rather than really pursuing the finish of the takedown, Right? She did that a few times here. Like, she tries to throw, she tries to trip, she can't get it, she slips to the back. As Andraj is defending, right? What's Andraj do right away? Immediately, and with great success, she breaks the grip. Her grip fighting, her hand fighting, and grip breaking, uh, this was a... Like, if there's something you want to take away from this, that you might want to like try, like try, watch how she does that. That's technique and that is her physical strength because Jessica Andraj is like she's like an ant. Right? Just capable of lifting things many times her own size. Like she's strong. So Murphy doesn't have a lot of power. She's not great defensively. She's not go- she gets by a lot on being surprisingly strong physically in a decent clinch game. She's not stronger than Andrage, though. And she's, again, she's defensively porous. And, oh, yeah, Jessica Andrade is. <sighs> Andrade has a motor that does not get enough respect. That I've seen that woman fight five rounds at a crazy pace and not slow down. So you're going to, what, rely on your toughness and her slowing down? She ain't going to slow down, not over three rounds, not over five rounds. Um, so this was an easy pick for me and I think most of the MMA world the odds were pretty big on this one and here's the thing about this MMA corners are just not going to stop fights when they should I don't know why they don't but I mean I can kind of guess why they don't but I don't really know why they don't but they don't This fight should have been stopped between rounds two and three. I mean this to her corner, to anyone thinking, to anyone who was in a position to stop this. What in the world was serviced by throwing her out there for the third round to take more head trauma? Huh? What'd you get out of this? There was no chance for her to win. And I mean that. Like, sometimes I get it. either because of how a fight's been going, if it's a little bit back and forth, or if you've seen glimpses of, here's our path, and there's still a chance you can get it. Like, I know that it's tough, and I'm not saying it's easy to throw in the towel on your fighter. I am saying your calculus has to be, what's the point? So I ask you about this fight. And I'm, I said this a little bit about the fifth round between Teixeira and Hale. Like, what was the point of that? We didn't need that fifth round. And We did not. Like, Nothing was changed by it. I, I mean that about this this fight even more so. What was the point? Murphy didn't have a path to victory here. That sounds like I'm just you know, trying to pile on Lauren Murphy, who I've never been, like, I've never been a big fan of Lauren Murphy in the kind of the general sense, and I'm fine. But, like, what was the point here? She didn't have a pat... Like, she wasn't going to get a takedown. Sorry, Jessica Andrade is hard to take down under the best of circumstances. You clinch know, clincher install out, you, you haven't had any success in the clinch. Gonna knock her out? You're not a knockout threat. Is she getting is just is she getting tired? And now's our chance? For, no, she's not. All you did, you know, what, I'm gonna find the stats on this because there's a couple of things related to this fight that need to be said. All right, all you did, coroner of Lauren Murphy, all you did for that third round was send her out there to get hit. Uh let me see this broken uh, let me see this broken down. Okay. Significant strikes. In fact everything she landed in the Yeah, okay, only two of the strikes of the total strikes landed in this round were not deemed significant. So ninety-five. And seventy eight of those were to the head. All you did was throw her out there to get hit in the head ninety five more times. That's all you accomplished. And that's all you were ever going to accomplish. There was no path. There was no hope. And I hate saying that. But that's reality. You didn't win... You did not win a single, solitary, 10-second segment of this fight before that. I mean that. You can't find 10 continuous seconds of any minute of any of those first two rounds for Lauren Murphy. You can't find a single 10-second period of time when you say Lauren Murphy's winning this fight. Does not exist. And yet you said here, she took more damage in the 3rd round than any of the other two rounds. Not combined, but 90 Five significant blows 78 of them to the head 78 blows to the head for no reason bless John Anik by the way for saying I don't know what we're doing here there's no such thing as a moral victory in going the distance there isn't there aren't moral victories here there's this weird hybrid of there's something in MMA, and it's a little bit unique to MMA, where we still lean on some of the just BS from some traditional martial arts schools of thought. And that's not me dumping on traditional martial arts, by the way, again I'm a practitioner of what could probably be called a traditional martial art, depending on just how pedantic you want to get about it. Again, my my base, not the only thing I train, but majority. And th- again, there is you don't see this in boxing, not because boxing doesn't have. This is where again some of the the BS practitioners and the the mystics and whatnot kind of chime in. No, don't you understand? It's about self improvement. No. I'm not saying martial arts don't make can't make you a better person. They can, they don't always, but they can. I've seen that and they can. But I'm not saying there's no value to some of the self-discipline and life lessons and values of sportsmanship and all that other stuff that we teach people, especially, you know, children who get into this as a, a as a learning experience, as a socialization experience, as a as a supplement to parenting, really. Right, I think that's how Kale Sanderson like describes wrestling if he's trying to recruit you into something like parents. you can't be with your kid all the time. A good wrestling program will fill in some of the gaps in your parenting, and that's bear in mind, I think that's true But you don't so so again, why don't you see this in, higher level high, uh, high level wrestling. Doesn't really have this problem. I didn't boxing have this problem. Pretty simple reason, actually, and it's not that those sports don't, again, that not that those sports don't or can't teach some of the same lessons. In some cases, better than some traditional martial arts. The issue is reality. That might sound really, really weird, but hear me out for just a second here. Boxing faces reality. If you pursue boxing, I mean, really pursue it, you run into reality real fast. I mean, real fast. Some cases, maybe too fast, depending on the uh, gym you go to and how they treat newcomers. But ultimately, they have to deal with reality. Wrestling. Deals with reality. Traditional martial arts spent a long time in fact, some of their... I can't say formative, because that would be very disingenuous. But, let's call it during the bulk of their explosion in popularity, most martial arts, traditional martial arts, avoided reality somewhat assiduously. And we have only since, pretty much since of the late 90s, it's only the last 20-ish years. Yeah, call about a little over 20. You know, 20-ish. We're in the 30th year of the UFC, right? The first UFC was 1993. So give it a little bit of time post the first UFC. So again, again, around 20 years. A little over 20. That they have had to, in some very real ways, kind of face down reality. For the vast majority of them, they spent their time dealing with very... It's weird, because it was either very regulated or very unregulated uh, fight structures. And I'm not saying that those have no value. Let me be very clear about this. I'm not saying those don't have value. They do. They absolutely do. There's value to some of the point-fighting karate styles that you can learn. There's value to... Heck, there's value to how Taekwondo fights. One of those being that Taekwondo fights let you go for the knockout win, whereas the WKF does not, which is the weirdest thing ever, but... So be it i was not at all involved in the establishment of those rules or associations i'm just me but they weren't really dealing with reality and the serious fallout of reality um there's an interesting video let me point you all to this if you're curious um i think an mma on point I think it's the MMA on Point guys who have a video that is like how kickboxing took over MMA. That's worth your time to watch. It it's not the most in-depth documentary in the world, but it's a you'll learn some things, especially about the history of kickboxing as it especially like American kickboxing and how that kind of intertwined with a few other things and it's an interesting again, it's an interesting little history lesson in a documentary, but if you look at a lot of the traditional martial arts, they tended to avoid those those rule sets those like full contact they avoided reality they avoided reality and maybe there's some good reason for that I mean again like you can go too far the other direction with this you can do what happens in Thailand where you've got you know 12 year olds fighting in Muay Thai fights I'm not kidding that's a thing You've like adolescents. Not even like older teenagers, like straight up ten year olds that fight in Muay Thai and uh I think in Letway too. And I like Muay Thai and Letway as styles. But again, like you can go too far, like that's a bit too far. I don't need to see ten year olds giving each other concussions, right? Mixed martial arts, for some reason, still carries a lot of the, a lot of the lack of reality that some of these other combat sports have had to face, and have had to make their peace with. There's no, look, there was no reason to send Raquel Pennington back out for a fifth round against Amanda Nunes, and yet they did it. wasn't a whole lot of reason for Glover Teixeira to go out for a fifth round against Jamal Hill. There was less than zero reason for Lauren Murphy to go out there for a third round here against Jessica Andrade. All right. Let me find the... Here's a... You want to know how stupid this was and how bad this got? Let me give you this statistic. This might blow your mind. All right. Total by the end of this fight. I want to make sure this is still accurate. I believe it is. Yeah. Lauren Murphy absorbed 161 significant strikes to the head over these 15 minutes. Now, for comparison purposes, the first fight, this absolute war, this barn burner, is one of the best fights ever. The first fight between Weili Zhang and Ioana Yenjacek, they absorbed a combined 192 significant head strikes over five rounds. Lauren Murphy, in 15 minutes, absorbed very nearly as much head trauma as those two did in that war together. But tell me again the value of sending her out there for more head trauma in the third round, please. Uh, her corner failed her. The referee just decided if there's not... Like, if you're not dead, I'm not stopping it. Just just pathetic. Just absolutely a pathetic display. Of common sense, of judgment, of officiating, of fricking all of it. Just pathetic. Um, after the fight, Andrade said she wants a title shot against Zhang Lee. She wants a rematch. At strawweight. Whatever. Um, I don't mean that dismissively. I mean, like, okay. Whatever. Uh, I'm not going to complain about a second fight between those two. I'd still, like, I'd favor Zhang. I've picked Andrade the first time. Zhang's gotten a lot better. I would pick Zhang this time. But... I don't hate the fight and kicking off the main card. Move on. Get off my high horse. Uh, Johnny Walker defeated Paul Craig via TKO punches 2:16 on the first. Pretty good finish here from Johnny Walker, actually. Um, Paul Craig does a lot of uh, kick catching, right? He's actually pretty good at it. So Walker throws a right front kick. Craig catches it, but Walker immediately follows with this really nice right hand that lands flush, hurts Craig, and he's able to get on top and pound things out from there. Uh, yeah, good win for Walker. Don't have a whole lot to add. As for the prelims, I'll try to speed up through the rest of these, I promise. Oh, this hurt. This one hurt my heart. To the extent that it's, you know, still there. Um, Iho, Ihor Potieria. Defeats Mauricio Shogun Hua via TKO punches, 405 of the first. Um, Shogun had announced this was going to be his last fight. He did officially retire after the fight. Um, I picked Shogun sentimentally, but I probably shouldn't have. Like, Look, it sucks to see the legend... Losing to a guy who's 0-1 in the UFC. And Potieria was 0-1 in the UFC. Um, Don't have a whole lot to say here. Shogun should have been done a few years ago. Let me just say this about Shogun. Shogun has one of the best... MMA career years ever in two thousand five. And I mean that, like you won't find too many guys who have a better year in all of MMA than Shogun did in 05, maybe like John Jones in eleven. But in two thousand five, Shogun he beats up poor Hiromitsu Kanahara. He enters the 2000 Pro- 2005 middleweight Grand Prix. He runs over Quentin Jackson in the first round of that. I mean, that's one of the most impressive wins you'll ever see, period. He beats Little Nog in one of the best fights ever. Then in the same night, he stops Alistair Overeem with ground and pound and then brutally knocks out uh, Ricardo Arona in less than three minutes. You don't You don't get run. Look at that. Quentin Jackson, future champion. Little Nog, legend. Alistair Overeem, future champion in a bunch of organizations and a few different, and like a title challenger in the UFC. And Aron is a sadly forgotten guy. He went on to... uh, Look, man, I remember in 2007 when he debuts for the UFC and loses in upset fashion to Forrest Griffin. I remember this vividly because Shogun didn't look great in that fight. I think he won the first round. It was a third round submission for Forrest and Shogun had some success, but didn't look great. He follows that up by beating Mark Coleman... Third-round TKO, but he like he looked bad. Like he wound up taking time off after the Griffin loss because he had knee issues. Comes back, fights Mark Coleman, and again does not look good. He gets the win because Mark Coleman managed to look worse. But there were people, so like 07, 09, a bunch of people saying Shogun's washed. 2009, they were saying that about him. Next fight, he looks good. He finally looks like he's healthy again. He fights Chuck Liddell, knocks him out in the first round. One of the funniest bits of commentary I've ever heard, by the way. It's unintentional commentary. But if you you fire this thing up on Fight Pass or whatnot, when Shogun lands that left hook on Chuck, uh, Mike Goldberg just admits every bias in the world by going, Oh, no when Chuck drops. Yeah. Um has that weird loss to Machida, rematches and stops him in the first round, then unfortunately runs into John Jones in 2011. I mean, I, that loss he took to John, man. That's one of the worst MMA beatings I've ever seen. Like, I mean, it's not the worst. But especially if we talk like, okay, let me let me walk that back just a hair. In a championship fight, that's one of the worst beatings you'll see. But you might find you'll find better fights, you know, in terms of bloodier ones, like and that are back and forth. That's one of the more one-sided, and it's one of the more like brutal beatdowns a champion has ever been on the wrong end of. And he bounces back. Like, he beats Forrest Griffin after that. He has that absolute all-time classic with Dan Henderson. That should have been a draw. Like, he still goes on to have a pretty good career with ups and downs, but um, yeah, he should have retired in 2020 after beating Little Nog, my opinion. Because every t- all he's done since then is lose. Paul Craig beats him and stops him. OSP beats him, and here Potieria stops him in the first round. But this is kind of the end of an era. Like Shogun was the last active guy who fought in both Pride and the UFC in any meaningful way. I mean, technically Robbie Lawler fought in Pride, but it was for Pride's U.S. debut. And I think so did um, Nick Diaz. Assuming he's still active. If you want to qualify him as active, I don't know. But Shogun was the last of that guard. He was the absolute last of that guard, and for it, those of us that pride meant a lot to, uh, it it hurts, man. But you don't like Shogun retiring after beating Little Nog would have been as close to a fairy tale ending as he was gonna get. You don't get those, and you so. I can't say don't as some like absolute. You so, 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 so rarely ever in MMA get the fairy tale ending. Most of the time, you are carried out of there. You are carried out of there while the other guy celebrates. That's reality. And it sucks. And I wish the architecture of the sport were different because that would help with this, but. That's reality. The guys like George St. Pierre who take a hiatus on a winning streak, who come back after years off to claim improbable almost glory one more time before riding off. Like, you count those guys on one hand, man. Count those guys on one hand. Mostly, it's this. Mostly, you know, it's Chuck Liddell getting stopped a bunch of times and then fighting in Golden Boy MMA and getting knocked out by Tito Ortiz. You know, that's that's how this ends so much more more often than not. So, to Shogun, I just say thank you. I did a, back in 2020, during the pandemic, to keep myself busy and to keep the show kind of doing stuff, Um, one of the career retrospectives I did was on Shogun. Uh, you can find that if you're interested. I think it's called, like, Deep Dive, the Career and Skills of Shogun Hua. So if you want to look that up, um, wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to find it if you're curious. Uh, it was... uh, This guy's been responsible for some of the best fights ever. He's been responsible for some truly spectacular performances. Uh, he was special, man. If you weren't around for him when he was the man, he was special. I encourage you to go back and look up some of his earlier stuff. If you've only ever seen him a little bit older, you know, like really even like seriously post UFC title, look up his earlier stuff and appreciate what he did. So I wish him nothing but the best. All right, that's the last one of those that's going to take a while. Um, Bruno Ferreira defeating Gregory Rodriguez via knockout 4-15 of the first. Woo! Gregory Rodriguez was winning this fight ha- pretty handily. He just gets a little bit flat. He, if Ferreira gets his back to the fence. Rodriguez just gets a little bit like too stationary. Doesn't quite respect a left hook. And Ferreira throws the left hook as he steps with his right leg to take dominant outside foot position. The culmination of this is not only a good punching lane, it's his weight. Um, If this is just an arm punch, it probably doesn't really do this. But he's stepping forward. He's coming forward. He's got all of his weight behind it, and that's where real power comes from. And... Rodriguez, Rodriguez, he just doesn't see it coming. It catches him cold, drops him out like a light, man. And he was wi- again, he was winning this fight. He was doing very well. Um, a heck of a win for Fer- or Ferreira. Uh, Tiago Moises defeated Melky Costa via rear naked choke slash neck crank, um, two o five of the second. Look, I, I respect Costa. He took this fight on short notice. He replaced Gurum Kuta de uh, He was just out of his depth. Welterweight. Gabriel Bonfim defeated Munir Lazaz via guillotine choke. 49 seconds of the first. Puts pressure on Lazaz. Lazaz shoots a bad double leg. Bonfim kind of stops the motion. Grabs the arm and choke. Jumps guard and is able to use the, the now momentum to roll through into mount with it. Get the tap. Good win for Bonfim. Uh, heavyweight. Jailton Almeida defeated Shamil Abdurrahimov via TKO, 2:56 of the second. Almeida's just, like... Watch that, man. I started singing his praises a little bit last year. Uh, he's got good takedowns, especially for heavyweight and light heavyweight. His passing game is really good. Uh... Pay attention to that guy. He's going to ruin a lot of fighters. And he might... Like, that's a guy who... He might be near the top of the of one of those divisions sooner than you think. Like, he's real good. Uh, Cody Stamen defeated Luan Lacerda via unanimous decision. 29-28 across the board. I scored this for Lacerda in real time. I don't object to 29-28 for Stammen. Um The first round was close. It was very close. I gave it to Lacerda. I can see the argument for Stamen. Stamen wins the second without controversy. Then he goes into cruise control in the third. And little bit of a. That could have bit him. That really could have bit him. Lacerda wins the third. Uh lightweight. Oh boy. Ishmael Bonfim defeats Terrence McKinney via knockout, flying knee. 217 of the second round Bonfim looked incredible here Uh, he wins the first round pretty handily second round he backs McKinney into the fence shows a few punches backs off comes in shows the right knee McKinney kind of sees that one coming but the right knee isn't really the threat it's a flying switch knee so right he jumps right knee comes first but the power's coming in the left McKinney ducks to his own left, opens up the side of his head, and this knee from Bonfim lands right behind the jaw, just like the lights, like the power button got shut off. Man, McKinney just, boom, he's bent over, and then he just tips forward and face plants. Absolutely shut him off. Uh, Bonfim looked real good here. Um my, his bro- again, his brother Gabriel got a faster win. Bonfim fought a better opponent and looked better. Like, he looked real good. Uh, welterweight Nicholas Dalby defeated Warley Alves via split decision, 29 28 Good enough fight. Um, I thought Dalby had this a lot cleaner than it looked. Women's featherweight Josiani Nunes defeated uh, Zara Farin via unanimous decision, 29 28 uh, Farron had a good first round and then just faded. Kicking everything off, Daniel Marcos, man, he looked real good. He beat Simon Oliveira via, uh, knockout officially. Uh, some sick body shot, knee to the body, follow-up punches, 208 of the second. Um, Marcos looked real good. Um, yeah, he looked, he looked ready for this level. Might have been because Oliveira isn't ready, but Marcos looked good. A uh, lot of investment and in body work early paid off in a big way. Uh, good stuff out of out of old Daniel Marcos there. So that's the event, UFC 283. If you want my full report as well as round by round scoring, clips of the finishes and whatnot, 411mania.com. It's in the MMA zone. Um, it, oh yeah, last thing here. Your bonuses. Uh, again, I mentioned already. Fight of the night, Jamal Hill and Glover Teixeira performances went to. Ishmael bonfiend Alme- uh, and Jailton Almeida, you had your choice of who you were going to give a bonus to, and you couldn't really go wrong. Um, yeah, no objection to that whatsoever. So again, full report, MMA Zone, 4 one Mania, if you're so inclined, as always. I thank you. All right. There is no upcoming event, so let me laugh about something here real fast. So... Dana, Dana White's power slap, you know what, if Dana White's penalty is to, if his punishment for what happened is that he is labeled as such for the rest of his life, you know what, I'm going to start calling him as such then, huh? Seem fair? So from now on, until this gimmick starts, it stops amusing me, UFC president and wife beater Dana White, Um, the, the, the power slap league, whatever, debuted. And how do I want to frame this? This is the last I'm going to say about this until I, it's announced that it's canceled, and then I'll mention that. But Every official involved with this, because they had legitimate referees and whatnot up there, should be ashamed of themselves. But you should have moral and ethical concerns about this that prevent you from uh, like officiating this to the extent that there is officiating. Um but let's laugh about you know let me set this up a little bit differently actually i'm not going to i am going to laugh, but let me let me set this up a little differently so u f c president and wife beater Dana white is trying to do this in a comically similar fashion to how he tried to promote the u f c Let me... By that I mean the following. If you feel like listening to any of his interviews on the subject... And I don't blame you if you don't, so take my word for it then. He uses the same phrases... Trying to convince you that this is legitimate... That he did when he was trying to explain to people why MMA is legitimate. The same phrases. Not kidding. Like 30 years removed not quite 30, so 25 years removed will be charitable there. And he's saying the exact same things. Exactly. And he found, so, he found a network willing to air this. He bribed leveraged the Nevada State Athletic Commission in sanctioning it. And this should sound familiar. Part of the reason that Nevada wound up was one of the first states to kind of legalize MMA and really sanction it in an official capacity, is because a couple of years before they bought the UFC, uh, Lorenzo was like on the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Lorenzo Fertitta. He wasn't commissioner, but he was on the commission, so he could kind of leverage his associations and all the other you know uh, financial stuff. Like so, we're now the UFC and Dana White in particular are kind of. The, an entity that can leverage an athletic commission. So Dana leverages the Athletic the Nevada State Athletic Commission into sanctioning this crap. Oh, by the way, a brief aside. To the Nevada State Athletic Commission. The next time someone comes to you and says we want to hold a fight here under the international rules of MMA instead of the unified rules, you get to shut up and rubber stamp that. The next time Josh Barnett or one championship say we would like to run here, we use different rules. Here are our rules. They're not unreasonable, they're just different. Here are our rules. The only reason you say no, and I know this and I'm going to say the I'm going to say the quiet part out loud here, the only reason you say no is to try and limit competition to the UFC. You're sanctioning head trauma That's all this is. Slap fighting is not a sport. It's not a combat sport. It's not anything. It is a gross exhibition of depravity. That's all it is. It is watch these two people stand across from each other and hit each other in the head until one of them falls over and can't get up. And you might say, well, in in a reductionist way, isn't that just boxing? No, it is not. The fundamental component of boxing and of mixed martial arts and of kickboxing and in all of it is defense. This is the ethical portion of how we do this is you are allowed to defend yourself. You are allowed to avoid. You are allowed to counter. You are allowed to block. You are allowed to do none of that in slap fighting. You stand there with your hands behind your back and let the other person hit you in the head as hard as they can. And that's it. This is your spectacle. You sanction this because the because Dana White wanted you to. That's the only reason you sanction this because there is no other consideration. And the next time someone says we want to run an MMA event with different rules, you're going to say no because you're a corrupt, hypocritical organization full of appointed bureaucrats Who do nothing of note for anyone and who just kind of wallow in your own crapulence about the vast majority of this, you largely disgusting individuals. But someone's going to say, I want to fight using pride rules. And you're going to say no. And they're going to say, Why you sanctioned slap fighting? And you're going to say, Shut up. That's it. Because that's all you can do. You have no logical discourse. You have no logical defense. You have no ethical defense. You have no moral defense. You have nothing other than your own self-important authority. And it's disgusting, but that's all you've got. So, brief aside. So, he finds a network, TBS, which is kind of desperate for content. Kind of like how Spike TV was desperate for content, right? Spike TV needed content. The UFC says, hey, we've got a reality show. And there's going to be fights. And there'll be MMA fights, and it's your opportunity. This will be a yada-yada sales pitch, right? So, Dana White goes to a network, TBS, that is now like, Oh boy, we need, uh, we need content. We need shows for the channel. And he goes, Hey, we're going to do kind of a reality show. And it's me, and I've got this track record with the UFC. Never mind all the other failures. Nope, don't talk about my ancillary failures. Just look at my success with the UFC. Yeah, Yeah. focus on the shot. Watch the quarter go back and forth. And what was the lead-in to the Ultimate Fighter, if you'll recall? WWE's Monday Night Raw. Really good lead-in, actually. Wound up being very important. What does TBS have? TBS has AEW Dynamite. That's a pro wrestling show just like Raw was, and that does pretty good numbers. Not as good as Raw did back then, but AEW does good numbers. Not here to get into that debate. And that'll be our lead-in. Eh? And don't you see the parallels? Don't you see the success? Don't you just want any... Well, it turns out, no, no one wants this. The debut episode of Dana White's Power Slap League had an average of 295,000 viewers. Now, if you're looking for context, one, that leads to some very low numbers when you kind of break it down the way TV ratings are broken down. If you want some real context for this, AEW's program that led into this had a peak viewership of just under 1 million. So congratulations, Power Slap. Power Slap. You lost 700,000 viewers from the lead-in. And the ne- I'm not going to go over this ever again until it like, gets canceled, which it will be shortly, I imagine. But that's horrible. Like, you're rate, you're, de- you're rating in like the 18 to 30 or 18 to 35 demographic. I forget which way they break it down. Like, you did a .01 in, theoretically, your target demographic. That's pathetic. That's just pathetic. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm aware that a guy with a podcast whose listeners are counted, like, if I'm lucky, in the couple of dozen, right? Saying that this show with 295,000 viewers is a failure, but look at the scale. That is a failure. There is no other way to spend this. Turns out, you know what slap fighting is good for? And it, Here's the only way I'm going to say this. Because I've made my moral and ethical objections to this existing at all fairly clear. In fact, you know, the week before this thing aired, a different organization held an event in Nevada because it's sanctioned there now. Good on you, Nevada. You weren't giving this you weren't giving Dana White a pass to do whatever he wants. I mean I'm sure he's got one of those. But by sanctioning this, every other scumbag promoter who tries to do this is now gonna come to Nevada and go, hey, slap fighting. But there was a clip that like went viral of a different slap fighting organization in Nevada, like during the week, and one of the participants has just like the left side of his face is not only badly swollen, it looks like it's sagging like he's had a stroke, like it's swollen and displaced down his face, like everything's shifted it's It's abhorrent, but hey, you let you're sanctioning this crap now, so good on you, I guess um it doesn't make good television it's boring the only thing slap fighting is good for is like TikTok or youtube shorts or that really like here's five seconds of this for you to kind of react to and then move on that's all it's good for to the extent that it's good for anything and i mean that only like the purest pragmatic how would we market this how would we sell this kind of thing It's good for if you could monetize YouTube short or TikTok or whatever. That's how you have to do this. Giving it a half hour or an hour broadcast is death. It's just death. And so a couple of things, a couple of lessons to draw from this, shall we? One, there's actually a little bit more hope for humanity than I thought. Who'd have thought? Two. Dana White's promotional shtick is sadly one note and has not changed in 30 years. 25. Call it 25. In 25 years, the man has done nothing new. Nothing. Same same verbiage, same, pers- same personality, same... He did an interview where he said, no one's asking you to watch this. If it offends you, go watch The Voice. Well, it turns out, Mr. Promoter, that telling people no one's, a- no one's asking you to watch this when you're actively supposed to be asking people to watch it is a bad idea. It was a line that made a degree of sense when talking about MMA because there are people who are just not into it, and the, the response was, we're not saying you necessarily have to be into it, we're arguing for the legality of it. Which is kind of the point Dana was making. And that's a much better point than... We're sanctioned. Well, people have concerns. Well, then don't watch. Okay. No one's watching. Now what? Eh? Now what? You did everything exactly the same as you did 20... Here's the other... What was the Ultimate Fighter? 05? Season 1? Yeah. 05. So, almost 20 years ago... Exactly... Uh, you, ha- y- you're trying the same thing from 20 years ago, and it ain't working because newsflash, heck, the way you promote the UFC doesn't even really work anymore. Just for the record, like a, a thing came out from the I think it was the Sports Business Journal, and I want to get this right, so let me get my uh, get my notation correct here. It was. Uh, sorry, Front Office Sports. So, correct me if, I apologize. So, yeah, Front Office Sports. Apparently, Dana White has convinced Ari Emanuel and the people at Endeavor that he is the key to all of this. That without him, the UFC, this billion-dollar entity, with... Uh, I did this last week, man. It cannot be true... That the UFC is this, well fun, this well-oiled machine with billions of dollars, with a billion dollars of guaranteed revenue, more or less, and television rights and deal and all this crap. And if Dana White goes away, the whole thing falls apart. You cannot, both of those things cannot be true at the same time. There was a point when Dana White was essential. That point is not now. There was a point. Look, let's do some comparison, right? There's a point in the history of Apple when without Steve Jobs, it probably falls apart. There's a point in the history of Microsoft where without Bill Gates, it probably falls apart. Those points went away. Apple is still a wildly successful company. Microsoft is still a wildly successful company. Dana White is no longer necessary. I'm not saying he has no benefit, but he is not necessary. Look at this. He, he, he got another failed promotional attempt. So he tried the same thing. Let's find a decent channel. little niche. Decent channel that needs programming with a pro wrestling lead-in. What could go wrong? It's not like we're 20 years later and everything has changed. Let's ignore everything that's different. In fact, no, let's not. Slap fighting is not MMA. Nothing about it is similar. So we're just we're straight up off to a bad start. The entire human culture has shifted. It's been 20 years. Dana's personality and Dana's style of promotion worked in the early 2000s and a little bit into the teens, right? It does not really work anymore. It certainly does not generate new interest. To that same vein... Let me just put it like this, and this is the only thing I'm going to say on the matter, because I don't want to get into pro wrestling here. AEW fans in 2023 have almost nothing in common with the average WWE fan in 2005. And that shouldn't be a controversial sentiment, okay? They're just, they're not the same. And you can say, you can think that's a good thing. You can think that's a bad thing. I'm not weighing in on it, other than to say, wildly different. Um, so I'm just gonna laugh at, dude. Every year, the comparisons between Dana White and Vince McMahon become more and more similar. Vince has half a dozen failed experiments outside of pro- promoting WWE. Everybody, oh, the XFL, yeah, the XFL wasn't, I'll defend the XFL a little bit, it wasn't the worst idea in the world, and Vince and that production team innovated in some very real ways, the broadcast portion, a bunch of stuff that was lifted wholesale, I mean I will take for granted in the NFL, if you weren't watching the NFL in you know, pre-XFL, uh, you wouldn't necessarily understand the differences in production that have come about. There was that. There was the... The World Bodybuilding Federation. Remember that? Yeah. Lex Luger was going to be the... <laughs> he's going to be the face of that. Uh, he had a couple of, like... Uh, didn't he try to promote, like, minor league hockey at one point, Vince did? I don't recall every... Like, several failed endeavors. And... You tend to only get one, man. You tend to only get one real big success in life. If you're going to be this... If you're going to hit big... Steve Jobs had one. Bill Gates had one. Vince McMahon had one. Uh, you, know, you tend to only get one. But look, you know, he had, Dana had you know, The Contenders, which was his theoretical boxing show, which from a quality perspective was actually not the worst thing in the world. But that fell apart. He had The Ultimate Surfer. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. Uh, he tried to get Zofa boxing to be a thing and then realized, oh, there's federal legislation here and protection for boxers. Well, boxing broken. Can't operate at a I can't operate at an eighty percent profit margin. I can't only I can't do a less than twenty percent rev split with my fighters. Well, can't make money. Sports it's broken. Now, this is gonna like this is falling flat on its face. Um, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say about this ever. Um It, it, again, I, I've yelled about this as, from an ethical perspective, but now I'm just gonna laugh at how badly it's doing and continue to give none of my attention to it. So, okay, no, you know what? The, re- the last thing, the real last thing about this, there used to be a saying that there's no such thing as bad publicity. That might, there might be a point in time when that was very true, that any any attention, any publicity to your project could be spun as good because it drew attention to your project. If that were true anymore, Power Slap would have done some much better numbers because in the build-up to this thing there was a lot of negative publicity and it seems to have actually driven people I can't wait for Dana to start blaming the MMA media for this. Th- this is the next step in the playbook, right? Now he's going to complain that the media isn't covering it, and the media didn't take this seriously. That's what's next. Um, just, just, just watch. Like I'd I bet, I'd bet a lot. That's the next thing that happens. Because he's, he, you'll notice he's not out there trying to spin this, right? He didn't get on Twitter and crow about the numbers. He didn't try to spin this. Um, you know. This thing had the, promo- had the UFC promotional effort behind it, too. You notice that? Like, this thing was... Pl- ads for this were playing on UFC programming. It was all over the UFC website. Apparently. I have ad blocks, so I don't get your crappy ads, but... Like, they got advertisements on UFC events. I've seen the commercials when I'm watching the broadcast. Like... Uh, I assume the next one's going to do worse. That would be my hunch. And, yeah, again, I... This is one of those things that probably should fall flat on its face and deserves it. And that's the last I'm going to say about it. All right, moving on. Uh, What do we got? Okay, so the UFC is trying to deal with the betting thing. They released a expanded guideline for... And now, apparently, fighters can't bet... Their coaches and trainers, their managers, their families, any of their handlers, like uh, I'm not saying the UFC doesn't, like they shouldn't be taking some steps around this issue. I am saying a couple of things. One, how are you going to enforce this? What's the mechanism here? But let's posit a hypothetical. This seems like a reasonable hypothetical, even. So let's say I'm a fighter, and I am training for a fight, and I've got a injury. Doesn't have to be debilitating, but I've got a minor injury, right? And it's maybe affected my ability to train. Maybe my cardio is not quite where it's supposed to be. My knee's a little banged up. Like pick with your poison here. Well, my wife is going to know this, right? Well, let's say my wife talks to uh, talks to her sister, hypothetically. And her and my injury comes up. Whatever reason. Her sister then tells her husband and that so again like if my brother in law not even my real brother in law, like again if my if my sister-in-law's husband hears about an injury and he decides to bet, apropos of nothing else, mind you, but, like, how news is like, gets through a family, and then he bets, what did he do that's wrong? Like, you'd have to be real specific about that, so, again, what law, what's the law enforcement mechanism the UFC is going to engage? The answer is none, if there's no actual law being broken. So who's going to suffer in this case? I'll tell you who's going to suffer. The only person who ever suffers. The fighter. Me. Not my wife. Not my wife's sister. Not her husband. Or remove this another degree if you like. Right? Say my wife's sister's husband tells a friend at work. Like, if this comes out... You could maybe argue by that point things are too far removed, but... but, Who suffers? Who pays the penalty for this? The answer is me, even if I do nothing wrong. Because that's the only thing the UFC knows how to do, is to crack down on fighters. Also, for the record... On the off chance someone is listening to this who has the ear of someone who might be able to get news to the National Labor Relations Board... I'm not saying that the UFC telling fighters and their, like, immediate circle and whatnot that you can't bet on fights that you're, like, involved... Like, I'm, I'm not... I'm not saying that's the wrong move, even, necessarily, from the UFC's perspective. It might be perfectly fine. Like, I, I have questions about application, but in a general sense, I don't actually object to this, but... Can we just stop with the notion that fighters are independent contractors, please? Everything about how the u f c treats them indicates they're employees, please, federal government. I don't ask you for a lot. in fact, I tend to think that you know you should do very you should do as little as possible. I'm a smaller government guy in a general sense general individual instances are different. my politics are somewhat immaterial but this is not a question of what is my general political outlook on life this is a question of do i think fighters are employees or fighters of the ufc are employees or independent contractors i think they're employees other mma fighters might maybe the case for independent contractor is more clear i've said the same thing about pro wrestling for years if you're wrestling for the wwe you're not an independent contractor, you're an employee, given how you are treated. If you work for, you know, a bunch of... If you work for anywhere smaller, you're probably... Independent contractor is probably still accurate. AEW? I don't know. There's a bunch of people, there's a bunch of wrestlers for AEW who I would consider independent contractors to AEW. There's other talent there that is probably an employee. Or should be. But... So UFC fighters should be employees at this point. Like, this is silly, and it's really it should be dealt with. Uh, they've also partnered with a, an agency for this, U.S. Integrity, which is a betting integrity group. And, okay, like, it, it's insurance for them at this point. Kind of like USADA. USADA is PR insurance for the UFC. That's all they are. If something goes wrong, and it turns out that a fighter who seriously injures or kills someone was on... Some kind of PEDs. They can go, hey, we have USADA. Not our fault. We did everything could. We could. It's PR insurance more than anything. All right. Last little bit. Um, UFC 285 has really shaped up over the last little bit. So we already knew about John Jones and uh, Cyril Ghosn being tapped for that. Added to that. Uh, we have a couple of title fights. Uh, wait, we have two? I think we have two. Uh, we have at least one more. We have a women's flyweight title fight between Valentina Shevchenko and Alexa Grosso. Uh, I'm just going to, for the sake of amusement, I'm going to echo what Jack Slack said when he saw this was announced. Like, Boy, Shevchenko really did uh, ask for the opposite of Tyler Santos for her next fight. <laughs> um and you know what that's fair um, I like alexa Grosso uh i'm just uh, i I'm not picking it's Valentina at this point as a general rule um we also got news that where did they say this was gonna happen It wasn't u f c two eighty five was it two eighty six that they added this uh i where the heck was it? Um, I believe they announced that uh, Amanda Nunes will defend the women's bantamweight title against Irine Aldana, and that was for the heck was it? Yeah, they are. Tar- it's not been officially announced, but apparently they're targeting that for uh, UFC 285. Man, this seems to be a little bit fluid. One second. Yeah, yeah, they're looking at UFC 285 for that as well. Um, you know, interesting note. Brandon Moreno became the first Mexican champion for the UFC. And no, I don't care. Ken Velasquez. Um, Brandon Moreno, first, like, Mexican-born champion for the UFC. The next, like, couple of months, Yair Rodriguez, Mexican, will be fighting for an interim featherweight title against, uh, Josh Emmett but he might win. I favor Amit, but he might win. Irene Aldana and Alexa Grosso are both fighting for titles. Both also, like, those two actually trained together. They're part of the same team, but both Mexican. It's not inconceivable that there will be more than one Mexican champion for the UFC in 2023. You go back even 10 years, I right? just 10 years. Heck, eight. And... Try to tell me, or a lot of the MMA fandom in general, that Mexican fighters will be beating, like, Brazilians and winning titles. Be a hard sell. A lot can change over that time, but that would be a hard sell back then, so. Not inconceivable that we hit kind of a flashpoint or a tipping point for MMA in Mexico. And you know, Mexican fans of combat sports, man, Mexican fight fans are legit so we might finally be hitting the tipping point there. Uh still have to wait and see a little bit, but there's some potential over the next couple of months for that to for some pieces to be in place to really really maybe set that market on fire and kind of turn it for the MMA. Cuz Mexican fight fans, man, they they're among the most passionate in the sport. If you're only into MMA and you've never, like, looked at some of the old boxing bouts that feature like Mexican heroes. I mean, guys like Canelo, maybe if you're looking for contemporary ones, but like you want to see the wild stuff, go watch you know, Julio César Chavez. Be the big one. Like dude, Mexican fight fans are something else. I mean and there's some look there are some really serious fight fans in MMA already already right the brazilians kind of they take it pretty seriously especially as an extension of their nationalistic pride uk fight fans are pretty passionate um if we're talking boxing like puerto rican boxing fans like they outperform like for their population because puerto rico's not the biggest the most densely populated but for being smaller in terms of numbers, like Puerto Rican fight fans more than hold their weight if they if it comes to throwing down in the fight fan category. But getting Mexican fight fans on board to MMA in a, in a real way, it's a big deal. Be a real big deal. All right, I think that's all I have for news. So let's see what craziness might have happened on Twitter. And if that's normal, we will go ahead and get out of here. All right, no. So what do we got this week? Uh, Let's see. I will be on Damn You Hollywood this week. We will be reviewing... I believe we're Glass Onion this week. Yes? Double-check my calendar. Yeah. Uh, Glass Onion this week. That will be myself, Mark Radulich. Uh, I think Alexis Haina, but I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, at at least Mark and I will be reviewing Glass Onion... The Netflix movie that is a sequel to *Knives Out*, and I have thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I, I got a lot of thoughts on this one. <laughs> um, good and bad. Good, uh, good and bad. So, full review Tuesday. Damn you, Hollywood! Tune in as always. Uh, as for the rest of it. Let's see. I cover mixed martial arts and professional wrestling. Of course, there's no UFC event on Saturday. However, I will be covering AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW stuff on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, and I will be covering the uh, WWE's Royal Rumble event on Saturday. Uh, yeah, so that will be will be fun. I will be covering that. I think I covered it last year it last year I covered it? Hang on, I gotta double check. Cause one of them I covered. I kind of got called in somewhat last minute. Yeah, I I covered last year's rumble, which was kind of a mess. Uh, I apologize <laughs> if my presence is if my presence is the bad luck charm here again. Um, I mean I think narratively they're in a better place this year than they were last year around the same time, but who knows? So I'll be covering it Saturday. So, if you're interested in professional wrestling and my thoughts there on wrestlingzone the 411 maniacom We will be back here next week to preview the absurd start time. Oh, God. So, you might remember. Um, next event, the first one in February. Uh, February 4th. The card headlined by Derek Lewis and Sergey Spivak. This was supposed to be a card that took place in Seoul, South Korea, originally. It featured all of the, like, final bouts for the... They did, like, a road to the UFC, road to the Octagon kind of thing over there, which I didn't... Uh, it was, I think it was on Fight Pass. I didn't watch it, but... like It was supposed to be kind of a regional thing there, and the broadcast time set up were to be for a primetime show in South Korea. Well, for some reason, they're not going to South Korea. They moved it to the Apex and kept the same start time, so the prelims... Let me double-check this, actually. Um, The preliminary card begins 8 p.m. my time, so 10 p.m. Eastern. The main card starts at 1 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, To be un... Okay, look. To you UK MMA, MMA fans out there, I know you're saying, shut up, we do this all the time. I feel your pain, first of all. I'm not diminishing your pain. I am saying usually you're staying up for better cards than this. <laughs> I if I were not covering this live, I probably would not watch it live. Like I, I don't know what I'd find time, but this would not be live appointment viewing if I weren't actively covering it, so. We'll preview it next week. Uh until then, thank you as always for listening. We're still, 2023, still going. Might be starting to turn things around a little bit. Might be. We'll see. Uh, Until next time, thank you. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.